This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, welcome back everyone. I hope everyone had a wonderful meal and is rejuvenated. It's always hard to have class right after lunch. I've done it for the last 22 years. I have a one o'clock class, it's Hebrew. which makes it worse for the professor and for the students. But uh, by God's grace, we manage. So we are in our last session today. God has been with us, and he will continue to be with us. I ask for your prayers for this particular session because we're going to be dealing with a very sensitive topic that I know is close to a number of people here as well, all of us, really. And um, it's not an easy topic, but it's one that we do want to have instruction from God's word on. And um, so I just, uh, let's bow our heads for prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, we have been journeying through issues and interpretation. We have seen that you have given us your word through divine inspiration, have revealed Jesus Christ through us in this word. Really, it is the only way we can really know Jesus is to study Scripture. And so, in a sense, it's kind of a false dichotomy to speak about doctrines versus gospel because the gospel is Jesus Christ, and it is in the Word of God that we hear His teachings and read His teachings. Help us to understand these things. Today we're going to look at a case study on how hermeneutics can impact interpretation and how various other areas can impact a biblical teaching on a subject. And Lord, this is a sensitive topic. And many of us here in this room have friends, relatives, we have loved ones, and we know that you have died for every single one of us. And so we just want to lift up the truth and the beauty of the cross. You have promised to save us from our sins, not in our sins. And we pray, Lord, that you would just be with me as I present this topic. Lord, thank you for what you do for us every day. Every life, every breath that we take, every moment that we have is a gift from you. And so we just want to humbly submit ourselves to you again today. And humbly submit our minds to you today as we look into your word again in Jesus' name. Amen. I was rushed in the last presentation, not because of your fault, but because of my fault. And I've neglected to share with you, again, some resources on prophecy that we have available. These are not things that I produce, but many of you know Anchor Point Films. And you know Chad and Fadia uh, Cruiser, who are here and have their own booth here. You can buy them from them. You can come to our booth probably. We, they have more than we do. But this is a series that they put out some years ago. Actually, it was spawned at a GYC, uh, their series, um, on uh, scripture. Anchor Point Films uh, is, what was the name of the series again? I forgot. But anyway, it begins with Daniel 2 continues with Daniel 9. There's a number that are missing here. Episode 7 deals with uh, life after death, the the big question of 
um, one of the key doctrines of our church that we've been talking about is, uh, is uh, the soul and the, the, the immortality of the soul. This is something that is very much taught outside of our church and many people believe in. It's also not only taught in other churches, but it is a philosophy that is found in almost every single world religion out there. And um, it is in the media, it's everywhere. So this is uh, approaching this from Egypt and Egyptian perspective. Our latest uh, documentary series is a two-set DVD on the seven churches of Revelation. And uh, that is a two and a half hour series, I believe. And uh, those are available here as well. So if you want some more resources, these were produced by Chad and Fadia after years of working on the ground as literature evangelists and, and, and evangelists, and particularly in the Pacific Northwest, which is quite a bit more secular than where I live in the South. And um, they just realized as they were going door to door, as they were talking about the Bible and prophecy, people constantly were referring to things that they saw on television or, or, or a, a documentary that they saw on the History Channel or on the Discovery Channel or, or whatnot. And so they began to have a burden that they needed to produce a series of documentaries that do not identify the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but that present our biblical truths and prophetic truths as we have them in Scripture. And uh, I remember it was an embarrassing situation a little bit. I was doing a seminar many years ago at GYC, and my topic was Isaiah and the Assyrian terrorist threat. It was shortly after 9-11, 2001, people were talking about terrorism. We were in a war with terror, on terror and so forth. So I thought it was a compelling topic. I didn't realize that the back row of the seminar had a group of Assyrians sitting there, one of which was Fadia. She is from northern Iraq, and she considers herself an Assyrian. And her uncle, a very imposing gentleman with a very large mustache, came to me afterwards after, I mean, I was talking about ancient Assyria and, you know, the, the wars between, you know, Jonah going, anyway, I didn't mention Jonah, he mentioned Jonah, he came to me, he says, uh, Dr. Hazel, I am an Assyrian. And I was like, <gasps> and then he said, Dr. Hazel, Jonah was sent to save the Assyrians. And I said, amen, you're absolutely right, that is as biblically founded and true as possible. He says, and God used the Assyrians to judge Israel. I said, you're, you're right. <laughs> Took them all captive. Isaiah prophesied that for years. Yep, that's what I was talking about. I mean, that's the destruction we looked at. He says, Dr. Hazel, I'm just pulling your leg. Everything's fine. He had this big, serious look on his face. And I gave a, a sigh of relief because uh, anyway, he's a wonderful man. I've, I've since been in his home. We actually filmed this uh, DVD in his home. He lives in Redlands, California, on top of a mountain, beautiful place. He's an architect, and we had a wonderful, one, he's a wonderful man. Anyway, I don't know how I got on that topic, but that's the, the recent, uh, div oh yes, yeah, so Chad and Fadia at those meetings decided they needed to do something, and so we started talking about Daniel 2, and you know, they started doing these DVDs while they were living in their car. They would come to Southern, to, to Andrews University to interview different scholars, they didn't have a hotel. I didn't, had no idea about this. But the sacrifice that these two young, this young couple had 
to produce these DVDs, and God has blessed them. Our literature evangelists are selling this one all over the country now. We're giving it out. I don't know what they're doing with it, but anyway, God has been good and has blessed their ministry, and they're here too. So if you're interested, go to their booth. Go to come to our booth either way. Um, we're talking about hermeneutics and um, the field of study, which is, concerned, which is concerned with how we interpret the Bible of, or other literary texts. We've talked about some of those issues. We've just skimmed the surface, really. Today, we're, this afternoon, we're going to talk about how do we approach the Bible with serious questions. When we have a serious issue that we're confronted with, where do we go? And if we have that issue, how do we approach the Bible with that issue? Do we approach the Bible with the preconceived idea of what we want the Bible to say and then find that in the Bible so we can go on our path? Or do we go to the Bible with a humble heart, inviting it to teach us to say the right things, to think the right things, to have our minds, our souls imbued with divine inspiration for the direction of our lives? I'm going to hopefully have this be a shorter presentation. I say hopefully because you know that has not been the case. Um, basic principles, we'll talk about that first. Then the case study today is marriage and the family. I'll, I'll end with a story and a missional focus because everything that we do, you know, if we can talk about these things intellectually, but if it doesn't make a, if, it, if, if, if it's not something that is lived and spiritually discerned, um, it's just an intellectual exercise, right? So how do we make this relevant today? And hopefully we'll have a Q&A afterwards as well. So let's start with basic principles. When you, when you have a major issue, and there are issues that we face, let's face it, we do not have all the answers. The Bible we wrestle with many times. Job, the story of Job, is a, is a great example of, of a man who wrestled with God. We are invited to wrestle with God. We are invited to struggle with God. And sometimes that struggle can take time. It doesn't always happen overnight. Let me tell you something. When I was in graduate school at the University of Arizona doing my master's and PhD, every single day I was confronted with a crisis of faith. Do I accept what I'm taught here today? I have to learn it, have to memorize it for the exam, but do I accept what I'm taught here today or do I rely on the Bible and the spirit of prophecy? I had to study twice as hard as my colleagues did because I needed to have myself grounded firmly in the word of God. I couldn't only study the subject matter, I had to study the Word of God. I was involved in a local church, I was involved with Pathfinders, I was an elder in the local church, I was in my 20s, newly married, and um, we had a, a small group uh, of young people that would come to our, our, our apartment every Friday night for a Bible study. We were very actively involved. That was my life. My fellow students would ask me, how can you not study on Sabbath, on Saturday, and make it through this rigorous program? And I would say to them, how are you making it without the Sabbath? But I had to, I had to really, every day was, was, a, was a decision day. It was a decision day on whether I accept what I'm taught, or the philosophical presuppositions of what I was taught, or whether I accept what the Word of God teaches. And let me tell you, I didn't always have answers to the questions that were posed in class. 
I, I learned to live, and I think all of us need to learn to live with an invisible shelf in our minds, a shelf where questions can safely go because we don't always have the answers to all of the questions that we are faced with. Sometimes God reveals answers to those as we study. Some of those questions over the years have come off the shelf, and I think that I have wrestled well enough and understood well enough and have a pretty good answer for them. Other new questions have gone up there. You have to be comfortable with having a shelf like that because this side of heaven, we cannot know everything. We are not God. God is God. And while he has revealed his, himself in his word, he has not revealed everything in his word. I wish that the first 11 chapters of Genesis would just have a little bit more detail for me as a historian. I wish that Moses would have mentioned the Pharaoh of the Exodus by name so I wouldn't have to guess. I had a whole series on this a few, few years ago here at GYC. I wish that so many details would be here, but if the details were all here, it would fill several libraries of Congresses. We are given what God wanted us to have, and we're asked to be patient until we can receive the fullness of our understanding. And there are some things I think we will never fully understand, but never assume that there is no answer. It's first principle when we approach the Bible with a question. Just because we don't have the answer, just because our friends may not have the answer, or our pastor or our teachers may not have the answer, don't assume there isn't one. That's one of the first major issues that we face sometimes. We come to a, a problem even within Scripture and we say, oh, well, that's just an impossible conundrum. I'm not going to figure that one out. Don't assume that there is no answer. Because we serve a God who is truth. He's love. And in that truth, it's all-encompassing. Certainly, there is an answer for everything. You may not know it. I may not know it. He does. Don't assume there isn't one. Dig for that answer. Keep digging. Don't confuse your fallible interpretation with God's infallible revelation. Sometimes we may not understand something in Scripture immediately when we read it, but over the course of time, that becomes clearer in our minds as we read other Scriptures, and suddenly a light bulb may go off one day, and you'll say, ah, I think I've got it now. This is it. Don't superimpose your fallible interpretation on Christ's or the Bible's infallible revelation. That is an important principle, I think, as well. Number three, this is, a, this is a huge one. Remember, the Protestant hermeneutic was Scripture interprets Scripture. But there's also a danger in this because there's all kinds of Scriptures that have been used by people to say all kinds of things to justify all kinds of things, right? Right? We know this from history. We don't have to mention any examples. But remember that when there are clear passages on something, you don't need to make the issue confusing by introducing unclear passages. 
The clear passages take precedence over the unclear passages. Interpret unclear passages in light of the clear passages. Um, the topic we're going to discuss today has some very, very clear passages. They're not very comfortable passages, but they're very clear. People don't like those passages, but let the clear passages speak for what they are saying. And don't up, uh, don't, don't, yes, don't uh, cause lack of clarity based on unclear passages. This is a big one. Consider the context of the passage. A text without a pretext is a context. I'm sorry, I, I messed that one up, didn't I? I'm tired. A text without a context is a pretext. So, consider the context of the passage. That, that's important. It's always important in life. Always consider the context of situations in life, right? People that you encounter. Sometimes things are not what they seem on the surface because there's a context to what is going on in their lives. Don't assume things. Take time to get to know the context. That's a huge lesson for life. It's a huge lesson for the interpretation of Scripture as well. Understand the context and allow that context to, to also influence what you're, what you're doing. Those are just some principles. You know, Scripture, while it has those, that depth that sometimes can cause us to really wonder about questions and things, Scripture at the same time is a very simple, the gospel is very simple. Sometimes we make it complicated. Ellen White says this in Great Controversy, page 598. The language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning unless a symbol or figure is employed. Christ has given the promise, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. If men would but take the Bible as it reads, if there were no false teachers to mislead and confuse their minds, a work would be accomplished that would make angels glad and that would bring into the fold of Christ thousands upon thousands who are now wandering in error. That's a profound statement. I was in China as a young man, my senior year in high school in 1987, my father, who was dean of the seminary at the time at Andrews, was going with the leader of our work in China, Dr. Samuel um, My mind just went blank on his last name. I want to say Juan, but I think it's a different name. Anyway, we were heading to China, and I was able to tag along as a young man into mainland China. The, China had just been opened for the first time, and uh, I met a gentleman who my good friend Stanley Maxwell has written a whole book about. Uh, some of you have, may have read the book, The Man Who Could Not Be Killed. I met him in person in Shanghai. I'll never forget that experience. The smile on his face, the story as he told it in Chinese and as it was translated to us by David Lin, longtime pastor in Shanghai. 
This man learned about scripture simply from reading it. He became an Adventist because he found the Sabbath in scripture. He found the truths of scripture in scripture. And then he found the church that believed those truths. You know, sometimes we make things complicated. He was not an educated man in the sense of having a PhD or even a master's. I don't know if he had a college degree. He was a police officer, a security guard, but he studied scripture and he became a believer. And for his faith, he was placed in prison and marched a long march. The story is an amazing story, but I simply relate this to share with you that the Bible has converted the simplest of souls if they simply would be open to hear God's voice. Here's a resource that I worked on with the Biblical Research Institute some years ago. Gerhard Fundel, who is a f- now retired but um, has worked at the Biblical Research Institute for many years. He was my first uh, Daniel professor at Bogenhofen many years ago. He's the general editor. I edited the Old Testament section, Dr. Tom Shepard edited the New Testament section, but this is a a great book that deals with difficult passages in the Bible. Sometimes we have difficult passages that we run across, and so um, this book deals with Old Testament and New Testament passages in a short, concise form. So if you're interested, I don't have this book, but you can go to the Biblical Research Institute website at the General Conference and order a copy. They're fairly inexpensive. So there are answers And a lot of people have thought about answers over the years. By the way, the church has been around a long time. And it's likely that you're not the first person to ask a question that that comes across your desk while you're studying the Bible. And there are others who have wrestled with these before, and and, and there are good, solid answers out there. We have a lot of good internet resources now as well, biblical research, biblical Research Institute has a number of important resources online as well. And if you're interested in science, there's the Geoscience Research Institute based out of Loma Linda, a general conference institution that also has great, great resources uh, for the sciences. So let's go into our topic. I'm going to be a little bit more text-based here um, in terms of reading a little bit more because I want to make sure that I get things right as I go through this. The Seventh-day, Adventist, the Seventh-day Sabbath is really a foundational institution, we would agree, established at creation, right? That's why we as Adventists teach that it is applicable to all people at all times, It is an institution established by God at creation before there was sin, before there was a Jewish nation, before all these things. You know this as good Seventh-day Adventists. The law of the Sabbath is written by God's own finger, and this is just obviously an abbreviated version of that. It's the longest commandment. In stone, the sign by which humanity acknowledges his creatorship and his sovereignty over their lives and throughout the span of, church, of, of Earth's history. It is the fourth culminating commandment. If you notice, we have two 
two parts of the law here, right? And you know two tables of the law. The first table deals with our relationship with whom? With God. The second table deals with our relationship with whom? Each other. So God first establishes our relationship with him and that relationship with him as we draw closer to him draws us closer to each other. Is that right? So two parts of the law. The first part of the law ends or culminates with the Sabbath commandment, which really protects our relationship with him as we come together Sabbath after Sabbath to worship him, to reconnect with him. We should be connecting with him all during the week, but the Sabbath is a special time that he has set aside to spend with us. The fifth commandment, which is the next commandment up there, and it may not be as clear to you on the screen because of that terrible light up there that washes it out, but the fifth commandment is right up here, and it begins with the words, honor thy father and thy mother. That's the fifth commandment. The opening commandment of the second table of the law. It provides the bridge, perhaps, if you will, between our vertical relationship with God and our relationship as a society with each other. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. These two commandments are unique in two ways. First, they are the only two commandments that are spoken as a command without a negative. Did you notice that? By the way, I need to say this. None of the commandments are negatives. They begin with God's grace and salvific act. God begins and says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you will what? You will, where is it? Have no other gods before me. It is as a response to his salvific act that we respond in keeping our relationship with him exclusive. So it's not a negative thing. It's a response of worship for what God has done for us. It's a beautiful thing, actually, when you think about it. And the, the way that the Hebrew is on these things can be translated, um, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Um, therefore, you will have no other gods before me. But these are the only two that begin without a negative prohibition. We're told to remember and to honor. Now, the word remember is used many times in the Old Testament, but it's particularly important here because we're to remember the Sabbath day, and then we're even told to go back further and remember why we're to remember the Sabbath day, right? Secondly, they define our relationship most exclusively with the very sources of our existence. Think about this for a moment. Just as God 
as the creator and the source of life in the universe deserving of our worship on the day he designated, so parents are the propagating source of life on earth and as God's stewards of creation are deserving of honor from their children. I think there's related aspects here, don't you? Let us unfold the concept a little bit further and look at the marriage and the family as it's constituted in Genesis. On the sixth day, God comes to the climax of his creation, humanity, and it's fascinating that the plural is used in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image. It's the first time that that plural is used. There's been a lot of discussion about that. I like to believe that it is referring to the plurality of the Godhead. Let us make man. God is in relationship within the Godhead itself. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They have been in relationship with one another for eternity, and they are creating relationship here now in this new planet called Earth and in the creation of humanity as well. Let us make man in our image. All the persons of the triune Godhead in loving relationship with each other now create the divinely instituted human relationship on earth. Let's look at this a little bit closer. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. By the way, in this, which is the largest segment of the creation story, all the other segments on the preceding days are not as large as this one as it relates to the creation of humanity. And we could spend a lot of time on this today. I won't spend too much time, but I want to say two things. I don't think it's a coincidence. It's not reflected here, but the word bara in Hebrew is the word to create. And that word is emphasized in Genesis 1, 27 through 28. It is emphasized and repeated three times. Bara, bara, bara. It's repeated in different ways to indicate what God did. I don't think it's a coincidence that God, and in Hebrew this is important because when something is, is repeated three times, it means the author really wants you to know something. God wants you to know that you are created. You're not simply an accident. He wants you to know that you are created in his image. We have a family that lives next door to us, the Hilton family. No relation to the Hiltons who own the big hotel chain. But they have... Uh, several dogs, and they like to produce and sell puppies. Beautiful puppies. I'm not advertising for them at all. I'm just letting you know. They have a new litter right now, and we were out holding the puppies. My daughter, Daniela, loves animals, and we thought it would lift up her spirits a little bit as she's just had knee surgery. So we were out there holding the puppies, petting them and everything. Dogs are wonderful animals. I grew up with dogs. We can learn a lot from them, right? They're probably a lot more loyal than we are. Um, they're faithful. But dogs are not the same as human beings. Animals are not the same as human beings. They can't paint a masterpiece. 
They, they can't compose a symphony. They cannot speak and communicate the way we can. They probably are able to worship, I would think, but certainly not in the way we can. We have been given speech. We have been given free will. We have been given a great deal of responsibility. We are the only creatures in the creation account that are created in the image of God. We are given his attributes. Eve is taken from Adam's side. Adam declares, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam names her woman. Marriage requires that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So what is the reason for marriage then to take place? Well, Eve was created out of something taken out of Adam. And there's a certain sense of returning to Adam as she's been created as well, isn't there? The complementarity, the complementarity of the relationship of man and woman here is extremely important. It's an unequivocally biological, complementarian kind of thing. And this one flesh relationship as defined in Genesis, is to take place between a man and a woman. The union is further clarified in the instruction given to the earth's first parents. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That's part of the function of what this union is supposed to accomplish. In this way, the foundation of humanity and society on earth was defined in God's creative life-giving work at the beginning. Now, let me carefully state this. The assurance of humanity's future is in following God's design. Every single one of us is here because we have a biological father and mother. We wouldn't be here otherwise. The gift of God's union in marriage is his final act in the physical creation. It's the last thing before creating the Sabbath, which is not really a physical act, but something else. The institution of the Sabbath in time brings this union into communion with the divine agent of creation, Jesus Christ. Our creation in God's image forms the intended identity of each one of us, and our acknowledgement of identifying with him comes in our worshiping on the seventh-day Sabbath. I don't think it's a coincidence that these commandments are where they are in the order of things. The loving relationship of the creator with the family is to be perpetuated from the husband and the wife to future generations through their children and through the generations of history. That's the task that we have as parents. It's a huge task, let me tell you. I was talking with my former student and his wife, Ben Martin, who's having a parallel seminar here on 
parenting. He was my first advisee when I came as a new teacher to Southern. And I always apologize when I see him because of that. We were both learning during that time. But um, you can, you can uh, know a lot of things about parenting before you have kids, right? Um, but we, that's our task. Our task is to perpetuate the love of God, the sacredness of God to our children. There's a sacred trust given to the nuclear family as the basis of the rest of culture and society. As their relationship with God and with each other goes, so goes Earth's history. This is a big thing. Perhaps it's for this reason that the fifth commandment, the seventh commandment, and the tenth commandment address the sanctity of the marriage union in honor and the honor bestowed to parents and ending with the instruction not to cover, covet a neighbor's wife. That sacredness of unity is special, part of God's design. Now, concerning the divine institution of marriage in the canon of Scripture, if we apply this principle of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, we have to look at what else is said. And, and here we can spend a lot of time but I want to uh, focus on a few things on Old Testament and marriage. The, the marriage covenant in the Old Testament is really the basis for the future promise. Think about it. The covenantal promise and the future promise of the Messiah. Generations are traced through history. By the way, First Chronicles is not just a bunch of boring begats. First and second, first Chronicles is the way the Middle Easterner thinks still today. You ask an Arab person what family he belongs to, and he can trace back his generations to the beginning because it's part of who we are. We kind of have lost that in Western society. But there it is a big deal. Genesis 5 and 11 trace the history of humanity through that period of history. The promised seed of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is to be fulfilled through that process. Yes, Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit to a virgin Mary. But if you read the lineages in Matthew and Luke, you can see how important those are to establish Christ's connection to the promise. The covenant and promise is given in the same context, by the way, and in contrast in Genesis 19 to the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same book, just a few chapters later, that you have that event. So the promise, in other words, that God makes to Abraham as he visits him, that he will have a son, and Sarah laughs, you remember? That same story, that very same story is dealing with the issue of Sodom and Gomorrah. The promise of a son and the judgment against two cities. When the natural order is broken, severe consequences result. When the promised seed of the Messiah is jeopardized by the death of Ruth's husband in Moab, 
other things needed to happen in order to make that fulfilled, right? They returned back from Moab, Naomi, bitter and sad, Ruth gleaning in the field, and suddenly, it's a beautiful love story if you haven't read it, there's Boaz. Wonderful. And through their marriage, Obed, the father of Jesse and the father of David, is born. And in this love story, we see the gift of rekindled love and marriage providing for the future of a family and a future of the human race. Marriage is a beautiful thing. Jesus, Paul, in the New Testament. Got to go through some of these. Therefore, what God has joined together, Jesus said, let not man separate. Yes, he was talking here about divorce, but he was also reaffirming what the Old Testament had been teaching from the beginning. Right? Jesus did not contradict the teachings of the Old Testament. He says, I have come to fulfill the law. Jesus affirmed scripture and Genesis in particular by stating that the joining together of man and woman comes from God and that what God has divinely ordained should not be separated by man. Paul specifically addresses the foundational nature of the marriage union in Romans chapter 1. Beginning with creation, Paul affirms that all humanity through nature could come to understand the reality of the existence of God. But Paul goes on to state that, quote, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This choice to believe in a lie led them to their practice, which comes in the next verse. For this reason, God gave them up to their vile passions. And what follows is the description of same-sex relations, relations between both females and between two males. For Paul, biblically defined sexuality between a man and a woman is natural. That's the term he uses. And is intrinsic to the very nature of human beings who are created in the image of God. It is the refusal to accept the creator by exchanging his worship with that of the creature that causes them to be handed over to their lusts. Sexuality then should not be limited merely, this is important, sexuality should not be limited then merely to behavior and activity. Rather, it should be understood within a biblically defined concept of created humanity in the image of God, a totality that provides the framework to reinforce moral behavior. That was, I know that was a mouthful. Have to buy the book later to get that again. So what do we do with the world that we live in today? It's not an easy world. I, I think this picture is amazing for several reasons because I, I know the people in the picture and they're good friends. And, um, but they're in the middle of a road. 
And today, there's no question that marriage is in crisis, no matter what angle you look at it from. It shouldn't surprise us, because if marriage is an institution ordained by God at creation, wouldn't that be a special target for Satan in the days in which we live? If the two creation-instituted doctrines, if you will, and there are more, but those two specifically are there, wouldn't that be the aim of Satan's attack as, 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 as best as he can? And there's another element to this. You remember we read in the Spirit of Prophecy that one of Satan's main problems with Jesus being the agent of creation was that he was the one who created and human beings were created to procreate, but Satan and the angels evidently can't. So we have here another aspect of complexity in this. In our society today, marriage is being attacked on all fronts. In this picture with my friend Dr. Timothy Matthews again and his wife Felicia and their little one, they're expecting now the second one, by the way, just announced that. Where they're walking, they can get hit on all sides, can't they? And that's the way it is today. We can get hit on all sides. We are, we are, we are facing big, big issues. Now, let me say this. We're going to talk a bit about some of the things that have happened recently. Many nations in the world, United States recently, in addition to many others, uh, have legalized same-sex marriage. We know that. That is one thing that is happening in government, and that is impacting our lives as a nation, as institutions, as a church in many ways. Um, it is also impacting many other churches, as you know, as well. And it raises new questions that we have to deal with about the institution of marriage. It raises new questions about the separation of church and state. It raises questions about the sanctity of marriage and the family in today's society. Is marriage a religious institution that is defined by the Bible? Is it simply a biological necessity for the creation of life? Is it only in the sphere of individual human rights and personal preference. There are so many things that are at play here, and this is a very loaded topic, and I'm not going to get into it too deeply. But I will say this, that it has certainly affected the church as well. Sorry, that's not what I wanted to do. Today, mainstream Protestant churches are increasingly accepting same-sex marriage, not only among the parishioners, but also among their clergy. And when I say churches, I'm talking about Protestant churches. In 2009, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and the Episcopal Church USA, both independently, voted to approve homosexual clergy. Lutherans recently elected a practicing gay bishop in California, and the Presbyterian Church USA welcomes practicing homosexuals ministers and leaders as of 2011. In Europe, the Scottish Episcopal Church approved same-sex unions in 2017. And as some of you are aware, just this past year in February, there was an emergency general conference session by the Methodist Church that dealt with this issue. I have a very good friend who is a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary 
who's written a book on this topic, a very good book, by the way. And he uh, was in the middle of that fray. And he came to lecture at Southern uh, uh, two years ago, I believe it was, and was sharing with us the crisis that his church is facing in North America. He says, I'm part of a committee. We're discussing major things. What happens when the church splits? What happens to our parishioners? He says, we don't care anymore. We're at the point where we don't care anymore about the properties and the institutions and the churches themselves, but where is a safe place for parishioners to go when the split happens? And he wasn't talking about the possibility. He was talking about the inevitability of it happening. Now, surprisingly, as you may recall, in February uh, of this past year, the Methodist Church decided to uphold a biblical view of creation, marriage, covenant. But that hasn't stopped the forces within the church to continue to push their way. And as I was listening to him and hearing some of the discussions that are going on in their circles within their denomination, and they're talking to the Presbyterians who went through this some years ago and faced the same issue in their churches, I'm thinking to myself, this sounds very familiar to me. It's hitting us too. And we need to be aware of, of some of these issues. Now, I don't believe that the recent decisions in the churches I've just mentioned have dramatically aided in the increase of membership in those places, in those denominations. In fact, we know that Protestantism in America is not in a very good place, and you can read the statistics that have come out from time to time. How do these churches really argue for these positions? So that's what we're going to talk about. And I'm going to discuss this on the basis of sources that are out there, that are readily available. Um, the book has more sources than I can talk about today. But uh, there are three things that, that have been used as an argument. Number one, there's a redefinition of creation and the acceptance of an evolutionary worldview. You see, if you're believing in an evolutionary worldview, you really don't have the creation basis anymore for either the Sabbath or the institution of marriage. Is that right? Uh, we have to realize that these are core things. If we give up creation, we're giving up a lot. Not only those two institutions, by the way. I wrote an article just uh, the last few months, uh, which was an expansion of an article I wrote some years ago for the Adventist Review on why, I'm an, why I am a creationist and what difference it makes for my everyday walk. And it's interesting that almost every one of our 28 fundamental beliefs are tied to that foundational few chapters of Genesis, every single one of them. So you have to redefine creation. Two, there is a reinterpretation of key passages in Scripture that have historically been seen as prohibiting homosexual behavior. And by the way, there are some very clear passages. We're going to read them in a moment. I hope I'm not going to offend anybody by reading the Bible here. But there are some very, very clear passages. And uh, these are referred to often by others as clobber texts. I'm not intending to use them here. I simply want to understand what the Bible is teaching on this matter. Number three, 
an application of passages on love and acceptance that take precedence over clearer passages on the subject. Those are the three tacts that are used. So the first is redefining creation. In his book, Matthew Vine, those who affirm uh, same-sex relationships have reinterpreted Genesis in several ways. Matthew Vines suggests that God needed to provide Adam with a woman because they were the first earthly parents and were required to procreate in order to fill the earth. But he implies that this is not necessary today in the world that is overly populated. He states further that Genesis 2 does not emphasize Adam and Eve's differentness, but their similarity as human beings. But while this is true, that Adam speaks of Eve as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, this is certainly not stated in the context of a homosexual relationship. This is a comparison with all the different animal species that are around, right? That was what, how Adam first recognized that he was alone. It then does not follow that sameness and companionship was all that mattered, for they also, the text says, became one flesh. And here the complementary nature of God's design in making this physically possible becomes a key element. They were the perfect anatomical match for each other as um, several have pointed out. Procreation is an essential purpose for marriage, and even though not all couples are able to or have children, the parental role of a husband and wife is also assumed, as we have already seen in the fifth commandment. Others have suggested that Genesis is merely descriptive and not proscriptive, that it describes what God did but that God did not make marriage between a man and a woman normative or exclude other relationships. But to this, we must again appeal to the fifth commandment, which is certainly prescriptive or proscriptive, and to the laws in Leviticus, which we will see in a moment, and to Jesus and Paul, which we will also refer to in a moment, who both affirm the creation order as ordained by God and therefore natural. In fact, after God finished the apex of his creation, that is man and woman, his design was perfect. God declares what? It was very good, right? So there was really no need in Genesis 1 and 2 for a proscriptive statement. In other words, something that denied something else because the fall had not yet taken place. It was only after the introduction of sin that deviations began in the union he designed humanity for and so this argument is somewhat difficult. Let's go to Leviticus 18.22. We don't have a lot of time today to talk about these, but here are some of the clear passages. You shall not lie with the male as with the woman. It is an abomination. And in Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with the male as he lies with the woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall certainly be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. These commands occur in a series of sexual prohibitions that include adultery, incest, child sacrifice, and bestiality. All of these prohibitions are still valid in contemporary society, except for, of course, the homosexual acts in recent years. 
But in this list, only homosexuality is described as an abomination. And that word, by the way, is tobeba in Hebrew, which can also be translated. I'm just taking this from the dictionary. An abhorrent thing, something detestable, loathsome, utterly repugnant. That's what we have in the standard dictionaries of Hebrew. The penalty for this act is death, and if that action is not taken, one is to be expelled from the whole community. That's what we have in the teaching process here. Now, that sounds very harsh today, and I'm not suggesting that we follow this necessarily to the letter, but I think we have to also take this and understand what the text is saying and realize that this is a very, very clear statement Robert Gagnon, in his book, this is actually a very good book that I would recommend. He is a Presbyterian scholar who has written a very insightful book on this issue. Uh, notice the subtitle, Texts and Hermeneutics. Uh, and I'm taking some of uh, these things from him as I'm talking about this. I have a low battery because I'm not plugged in and I'm about to shut down. Let me see, where's my plug? Sorry. I don't want that to happen. This is an old computer, and I like it because it still has ports. <laughs> what did Mac do? I am an absent-minded professor. I will lose my dongle constantly if I have to go that route. Sorry, just an aside. Shouldn't have mentioned that. My wife has the new computer. Major issues. Glad I have mine. All right. <laughs> Paul in the New Testament. Let's go to the New Testament. Paul reaffirms Leviticus in his list of sins, which includes the sexuality, I'm sorry, the sexually immoral or fornicators, pornoi is the word used, idolaters, adulterers, the effeminate, malakoi. This is, again, these terms have been reinterpreted in recent years with the whole discussion of homosexuality. Uh, the homosexuals are senakoitai, Thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, and swindlers. There's quite a list there. And some of us uh, can fit under some of these categories. Some of us um, are also in danger of some of these things. But he makes clear in these passages in Corinthians and to Timothy that these sins are not part of a faithful Christian uh, or part of faithful Christianity. And again reaffirms what we see in the Old Testament um, as we go there. So, in regards to Leviticus 18 and 20, some have argued, so the question is, what do we do? <laughs> what do we do with the Bible? What do we do with uh, the teachings that we have there? In regards to Leviticus 18 and 20, let's look at how some have reinterpreted these passages. Some have argued these clear prohibitions are part of the ceremonial law and are no longer binding in Leviticus 18 and 20. Maybe you've heard that argument before. That's the main argument that is used against the Sabbath. It's a ceremonial thing. It's no longer binding. It's part of the Jewish covenant. So this is not unrelated to other arguments that are out there in Christianity and as it impinges also on our church's beliefs. Others say that these prohibitions applied only to the Israelites and only within that time and culture. Have you heard that kind of argument before? 
culturally conditioned. We live in a different age now, and therefore we need to adjust to the new age and the new situation. Some cite prohibitions against wearing mixed fabrics, which we don't follow today. And maybe we should not follow this as well because we wear mixed fabrics. I don't know what this is. Um, I'm just wearing it today, sorry, because I was told to wear a suit and tie. I followed the directions. One of my colleagues didn't last night. I noticed that. But he's a good friend, so I won't mention it. Um, <clears throat> redefining passages based on culture. Yeah. So here's an argument from John Boswell. The liturgical enactments characterize it as ceremonially unclean rather than inherently evil, and yet I would say this disregards the binding nature of the creation order of Genesis and the fifth commandment. Moreover, all of the prohibitions against incest, bestiality, child sacrifice within the context of Leviticus 18 and 20 remain binding, not only in the church today, but in national law in most cultures today. Why should homosexuality, which is written with even stronger language and consequences, be different? And how does one explain Paul's continued condemnation of this act in the New Testament? Vines states, yes, ancient Israel was dominated by patriarchal structures and norms, which we see reflected throughout the Old Testament, including its prohibitions of male same-sex intercourse. But far from being a reason to view scripture as outdated or sexist, the Bible itself is what points us toward a path where patriarchy is no more. So Paul, according to these writers, is moving us. Yes, he says this in some of his books, but in other books, he's moving us, in other letters, he's moving us to a new understanding. And this is called a trajectory hermeneutic. It's a very important key term, trajectory. There's a trajectory in the Old Testament, patriarchy, then the New Testament where Christ is liberating the church from some of these Old Testament laws. It's a very evangelical, um, how shall we say, uh, argument. And that we are in a trajectory that even leads us outside of Scripture. If Paul and Jesus could have, they would have gone even further than they could in their day because of the cultural bounds that they had in their time. Now, to me, this is dangerous because how can you prove or say what Christ and the apostles would say or do outside of Scripture? You are no longer interpreting Scripture on the basis of Scripture. You're developing a hermeneutic that takes you outside of the Bible. And the problem with this view is also that what you're doing is that you're also taking um, a verse of Scripture, one verse, and making that the verse that overcomes all other passages in the Bible that we've already read. That verse is Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. This is the key text that abolishes the distinctiveness in the genders, if you will, as well as other, as race um, and, of, of course, as slave or free. This is the trajectory hermeneutic that is using this. With this verse, Vines writes, this is the quote, listen. Paul undermined the belief that patriarchy has a place in the kingdom of God with this verse. But is that really what Paul is saying here? 
What is the context of Galatians 3.28? Do you know? Does it really redefine the image of God's creation order? Does the context really support sexual distinctions to be removed, allowing for same-sex relations and marriage? Is Paul pointing to us, us to a hermeneutic outside of Scripture itself, which he couldn't come to because of the cultural context that he was in? Wait a minute, what cultural context was Paul in? Greek culture. What was going on in Greek culture? Homosexuality. Anyway, sorry. But this is the argument that's being made here in this passage. Roy Gain, who teaches at the seminary at Andrews University, and this is an excellent book if you want another book published by Andrews University Press on homosexuality, marriage, and the church, has both Adventist, non-Adventist, um, and other individual scholars, as well as other individuals uh, who are writing in this, including um, some individuals who are here at GYC this, uh, this year. Paul upholds Leviticus 18 and 20, when in 1 Corinthians 5, he commands that a man in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother should be disfellowshipped. That's what Roy Gaines says. I'm, I'm paraphrasing him here. Now, this is a, not a homosexuality situation, but it is a situation that is also described in Leviticus 18 and 20, right? Incest is one of those um, elements that is mentioned there. Paul does this without asking whether they are engaged in a monogamous and loving relationship. This question is irrelevant for Paul because the prohibitions in Leviticus that include homosexual acts are taken and this act as well is taken at face value and normative. So Paul in the New Testament is, is upholding not only what we read in Romans concerning homosexuality, but also is upholding this other aspect of incest, which is within the same category of laws in Leviticus 18 and 20. So where am I at in time? Out of time? Okay, exhibit started at 3.45. I got a few more minutes. I'm almost done. Finally, for Jesus, Paul and other writers of the New Testament would say, I believe, that it is the believer's identity in Christ and our need for the grace of Christ that provides the solution to the temptations and tendencies of sin. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Just as in Adam all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so in Christ and through his grace and righteousness, I believe this is what the Bible teaches. We can all overcome. That is the power of the gospel message. And if that is not what the Bible teaches and is not possible, then I don't know what we would do because we wouldn't have a way out. So that we might put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. The honor of the Christian 
is to identify ourselves in Christ, in his image, in his definition. You know, I, I deal with this too. Um, I teach on a university campus, and when you have 3,000 students, that's, uh, that's a reality. God loves every one of us. Amen. He died for every single one of us. Amen. He wants us to have a whole relationship with him, every single one of us. Amen. For me, it may be something else. For you, it may be something else. But God wants us to be whole people. Yeah. And one time, a student came to me and said, but they love each other. And my answer to that was, based on whose definition? Christ defines what love is. He is love. And as we identify with Christ, we are made, hopefully we can grow into his image and identify ourselves with him. That is a struggle that all of us have. It doesn't matter because we are all born with the result of Adam's sin. But the honor that we have as Christians is to identify ourselves in Christ. The three angels' messages is to call a people out of confusion so that his power of grace might be, might be fulfilled in their lives and so that they can be a people who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Isn't that what the remnant is going to be? So I want to close, I'm out of time, but I want to close with simply a story at the end, which I think I can fit into five minutes. Last year, um, well, a, a year ago this month, I had the privilege to visit Hong Kong again since the for the first time since I was there. And it's an amazing experience if you've not traveled to this part of the world. Um, it is a daunting thing to travel to this part of the world in the 21st or 21st century today. Hong Kong is filled with high rises and I went there to do an evangelistic meeting with the division uh, uh, ministerial secretary, Dr. Ron Cluzet, a former colleague of mine from Southern. And we did that in our newly completed hospital in, um, in Hong Kong. And it was a great experience in many ways. One thing that I saw, though, while I was there was the crowds of people everywhere. Huge amounts of people. I told you I fly a lot. You know, I get on these CRJ jets. You don't see a CRJ jet in Hong Kong, or Seoul, or Tokyo, they, they don't exist, I think. There's 767s, and there are 777s, and there are A350s, and there are, I mean, there are big jets, and they're all full of people. You go to the city, it's full of people. Hong Kong has more tourists coming to Hong Kong than any other city in the world. 20 million tourists a year go to Hong Kong, mostly from the mainland of China. We rode the subways, and as we were riding the subways, packed with people. I took a picture. What are they doing? Young, old, sorry if I offend you if I use the word old. Young, old, they are glued. No conversations. They're all glued. 
You can see it. My wife and I, we couldn't make conversation anyway. We don't speak the local language, but it's incredible. And I kept thinking to myself as we're riding these subways and as we're walking around the city, how are we going to reach these people? 1.4 billion Chinese. Hong Kong, another, 20, another 7 million. Taiwan, more. How are we going to do it? Yes, secular, but still with indigenous religions. One of the largest Buddhas in the world. We went there. By the way, there were people from all over the world visiting this Buddha and worshiping him, including two Germans from Germany that I saw there. Wow. Our world population, it's daunting. From 1927, sorry, yes, till 1974, population has doubled in size. From 1974 to 2025, we're now only five years away, it will double again. How do we reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Our Adventist Connection study that was conducted at Southern, interesting study, shows where students are five years out from college and from graduation on where their beliefs are relating to the fundamental beliefs of the church. And it's interesting that the pre-Advent judgment, this is, by the way, Oakwood Southern and Valley View University and Babcock University in Africa. Pre-Advent judgment, marriage between those with same beliefs and Adventist church as the last day remnant are at the bottom of this. God created the world in six literal days towards the bottom of this. What's going on? How do we change that? While I was there, I visited the grave of a gentleman by the name of Abram LaRue. Bob Falkenberg and his wife took us there on Sabbath afternoon, and we stood at his graveside, the first missionary to China, to Hong Kong. He was a merchant marine, learned of the Seventh-day Sabbath, became an Adventist, went to what was at that time, I think, Healdsburg College, now PUC, studied, got trained with a desire to go back to China and evangelize the Chinese, but he was turned down by the church because he was too old. He was already in his 60s. He went anyway. Went to Hawaii, found his way, and arrived on his own, money on his own ticket, and he began to produce literature, and he began to evangelize. Eight years passed, and at the very end of his life, this picture was taken just a year before his death. He was joined by another missionary family, and they had their first baptism, the people that you see there, many of them sailors, like he had been in the Merchant Marine, baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But LaRue didn't know that his beginning of the work there would lead one of these gentlemen to go to Korea and another Korean missionary to go to Japan. And he wouldn't know that in the next five years or so, the work would be started in Asia in two other countries. Today, Korea has a very large Adventist population. China is growing. There's persecution there, closing of churches, our churches, arrests of our ministers. It's a challenging place, but God is at work. We need to have courage today to be people like Abram LaRue. We have a message. 
It's a message of love. May we fulfill the mission and uphold the word of God that he has given us for this time. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Heavenly Father, the theme of this conference is by many or by few. We are few, really, compared to the vastness of this earth's population. We don't know how it's going to be accomplished, but from your word, we know that it will be accomplished and that you're just seeking willing souls to do that work. Maybe there's another Abram LaRue sitting here in this group today or listening to the plenaries during this weekend. Maybe there are a thousand of them. Maybe there are 2,000 of them. But Lord, we have been called for such a time as this. We have been given your word. These are not easy times. These are not easy situations. We think of Christ who came in uneasy times and did not confront easy situations. But he upheld the word of God and he loved all of those around him. And he drew them to him. May we be those kind of people. May we share with them your word. And may your word transform us into your image, we pray. In Jesus' name. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.